Chapter Twelve of The First Men in the Moon. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. This recording is by Mark Smith of Simpsonville, South Carolina. The First Men in the Moon by H. G. Wells. Chapter Twelve: The Selenite's Face. I found myself sitting crouched together in a tumultuous darkness. For a long time I could not understand where I was, nor how I had come to this perplexity. I thought of the cupboard into which I had been thrust at times when I was a child, and then of a very dark and noisy bedroom in which I had slept during an illness. But these sounds about me were not the noises I had known, and there was a thin flavor in the air like the wind of a stable. Then I supposed we must still be at work upon the sphere, and that somehow I had got into the cellar of Cavour's house. I remembered we had finished the sphere, and fancied I must still be in it and travelling through space. Cavour, I said, cannot we have some light? There came no answer. Cavour, I insisted. I was answered by a groan. My head, I heard him say. My head. I attempted to press my hands to my brow, which ached, and discovered they were tied together. This startled me very much. I brought them up to my mouth and felt the cold smoothness of metal. They were chained together. I tried to separate my legs and made out that they were similarly fastened, and also that I was fastened to the ground by a much thicker chain about the middle of my body. I was more frightened than I yet been by anything in all our strange experiences. For a time I tugged silently at my bonds. "'Cavor!' I cried out sharply. "'Why am I tied? Why have you tied me hand and foot?' "'I haven't tied you,' he answered. "'It's the Selenites.' "'The Selenites!' My mind hung on that for a space. Then my memories came back to me. The snowy desolation, the thawing of the air, the growth of the plants, our strange hopping and crawling among the rocks and vegetation of the crater, all the distress of our frantic search for the sphere returned to me, finally the opening of the great lid that covered the pit. Then as I strained to trace our later movements down to our present plight, the pain in my head became intolerable. I came to an insurmountable barrier, an obstinate blank. Cavour! Yes! Where are we? How should I know? Are we dead? What nonsense! They've got us, then. He made no answer but a grunt. The lingering traces of the poison seemed to make him oddly irritable. What do you mean to do? How should I know what to do? Oh, very well, said I, and became silent. Presently I was roused from a stupor. "'Oh, Lord!' I cried. "'I wish you'd stop that buzzing!' We lapsed into silence again, listening to the dull confusion of noises like the muffled sounds of a street or factory that filled our ears. I could make nothing of it. My mind pursued first one rhythm and then another, and questioned it in vain. But after a long time I became aware of a new and sharper element— 
not mingling with the rest but standing out, as it were, against that cloudy background of sound. It was a series of relatively very little definite sounds, tappings and rubbings, like a loose spray of ivy against a window, or a bird moving about upon a box. We listened and peered about us, but the darkness was a velvet pall. There followed a noise like the subtle movement of the wards of a well-oiled lock. And then there appeared before me, hanging as it seemed in an immensity of black, a thin bright line. "'Look!' whispered Cavour very softly. "'What is it?' "'I don't know.' We stared. The thin, bright line became a band, and broader and paler. It took upon itself the quality of a bluish light falling upon a whitewashed wall. It ceased to be parallel-sided. It developed a deep indentation on one side. I turned to remark this to Cavour, and was amazed to see his ear in a brilliant illumination, all the rest of him in shadow. I twisted my head round as well as my bonds would permit. Cavour, I said, it's behind. His ear vanished, gave place to an eye. Suddenly the crack that had been emitting the light broadened out, and revealed itself as the space of an opening door. Beyond was a sapphire vista, and in the doorway stood a grotesque outline silhouetted against the glare. We both made convulsive efforts to turn, and failing, sat staring over our shoulders at this. My first impression was of some clumsy quadruped with lowered head. Then I perceived it was the slender, pinched body and short and extremely attenuated bandied legs of a selenite, with his head depressed between his shoulders. He was without the helmet and body covering they wear upon the exterior. He was a blank, black figure to us, but instinctively our imaginations supplied features to his very human outline. I, at least, took it instantly that he was somewhat hunchbacked, with a high forehead and long features. He came forward three steps, and paused for a time. His movement seemed absolutely noiseless. Then he came forward again. He walked like a bird. His feet fell one in front of the other. He stepped out of the ray of light that came through the doorway, and it seemed as though he vanished altogether in the shadow. For a moment my eyes sought him in the wrong place, and then I perceived him standing facing us both in the full light. Only the human features I had attributed to him were not there at all. Of course I ought to have expected that, only I didn't. It came to me as an absolute, for a moment an overwhelming shock. It seemed as though it wasn't a face, as though it must needs be a mask, a horror, a deformity, that would presently be disavowed or explained. There was no nose, and the thing had dull, bulging eyes at the side. In the silhouette I had supposed they were ears. There were no ears. I have tried to draw one of these heads, but I cannot. There was a mouth, downwardly curved, like a human mouth in a face that stares ferociously. The neck on which the head was poised was jointed in three places, almost like the short joints in the leg of a crab. The joints of the limbs I could not see, because of the puttee-like straps in which they were swathed, and which formed the only clothing the being wore. There the thing was, looking at us. 
at the time my mind was taken up by the mad impossibility of the creature. I suppose he also was amazed, and with more reason, perhaps, for amazement than we. Only, confound him, he did not show it. He did at least know what had brought about this meeting of incompatible creatures. But conceive how it would seem to decent Londoners, for example, to come upon a couple of living things, as big as men, and absolutely unlike any other earthly animals, careering about among the sheep in Hyde Park. It must have taken him like that. Figure us. We were bound hand and foot, fagged and filthy, our beards two inches long, our faces scratched and bloody. Cavour, you must imagine, in his knickerbockers, torn in several places by the bayonet scrub, his Jaeger's shirt and old cricket cap, his wiry hair wildly disordered, a tail to every quarter of the heavens. In that blue light his face did not look red but very dark, his lips and the drying blood upon my hands seemed black. If possible I was in a worse plight than he, on account of the yellow fungus into which I had jumped. Our jackets were unbuttoned, and our shoes had been taken off and lay at our feet. And we were sitting with our backs to this queer, bluish light, peering at such a monster as Durer might have invented. Cavour broke the silence, started to speak, went hoarse, and cleared his throat. Outside began a terrific bellowing, as if a moon-calf were in trouble. It ended in a shriek, and everything was still again. Presently the selenite turned about, flickered into the shadow, stood for a moment retrospective at the door, and then closed it on us, and once more we were in that murmurous mystery of darkness into which we had awakened. End of chapter